Chapter 16 of Bertram Cope's Year. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Bertram Cope's Year by Henry Blake Fuller. Chapter 16 Cope Goes A Sailing. Cope was himself in a few days. He set aside his aunt's counsel in regard to a better regimen, as well as her more specific hints, made in view of the near approach of rough weather, that he provide himself with rubbers and an umbrella, even if he would not hear of a raincoat. "'Am I made of money?' he asked. He gave a like treatment to some intimations contributed by Medora Phillips during her call. He met them with the smiling, polite, half-weary patience which a man sometimes employs to inform a woman that he doesn't quite know what she is talking about. He presently in as active circulation, on the campus and elsewhere, as ever. The few who looked after him at all came to view that he possessed more metal than stamina. He had no special fondness for athletics. He was doing little to keep still less to increase, a young man's natural endowment of strength and vigor. Occasional tennis on the faculty courts, and not much else. So the vast gymnasium went for little with him, and the wide football field for less, and the great lake close by for nothing. This last, however, counted for little more with anyone else. Those who knew the lake best were best content to leave it alone. As a source of pleasure, it had too many perils. Treacherous was the common word. Its treachery was reserved, of course, for the smiling period of summer. Especially did the great monster lie in wait on summer's Sunday afternoons. Then the sun would shine on its vast, placid bosom, and the breeze play gently, tempting the swimmer toward its borders, and the light pleasure-craft toward its depths. And then, in mid-afternoon, a sudden disastrous change, a quick gale from the north, with a wide whipping up of white caps, and the morrow's newspapers told of bathers drowned in the undertow, of frail canoes dashed to pieces against piers and breakwaters, and of gay beflagged steam-launches, swamped by the newly risen sea miles from shore the toll of fickle superheated august but in the late autumn the immense savage creature was more frankly itself rude blustery tyrannical no more a smiling cruel hypocrite it warned you often and openly if warning you would take it was on the last Sunday afternoon in October that Cope and Amy Leffingwell were strolling along its edge. They had met casually in front of the chapel after a lecture or a service by an eminent ethical teacher from abroad, a bird of passage who must pipe on this Sunday afternoon if he were to pipe at all. Cope, who had lain abed late, made this address a substitute for the forenoon service he had missed and Amy Leffingwell had gone out somewhat for the sake, perhaps, of walking by the house where Cope lived. 
They passed the science building with its tower crowned by an ornamental open-work iron pyramid for wireless, and the segregated group of theological dormitories through whose windows earnest ringing young voices were sometimes heard at the practice of sermon delivery, and the men's club where the billiard tables were doubtless decorously covered with their customary Sunday sheets of black oilcloth, and took intuitively the path which led along the edge of the bluff. Beyond them, further bluffs, and a few low headlands, here a lighthouse, there a water tower, elsewhere, and not so far, the balconied roof of the life-saving station, where the boats, light and heavy, were manned by muscular students, their vigilance and activity, interspersed with long periods of leisure or of absence, helped them to pay their way. Out toward the horizon, a passenger steamer en route to some port farther north, or a long oar freighter, singularly uneventful, between bow and far-distant afterhouse, on its way down from the iron ranges of Superior. The path was narrow, but Cope, unexpectedly to himself, had no complaint to make. Really, the girl did better here, somehow, than lots of other girls would have done on a wide sidewalk. Most of them walk too close to you, or too far from you, altering the interval suddenly and arbitrarily, and tending to bump against you when you didn't expect it and didn't want it. They were uncertain at crossings. If it was necessary for them to take your arm, as it sometimes became in the evening, on a crowded street, why, they were too gingerly or else pressed too close, and if it happened to rain, you sometimes had to take a cab, trafficking with a driver whose tariff and whose disposition you did not know. In fact, a string of minor embarrassments and expenses. But the way, this afternoon, was clear and easy, and there were no annoyances, save from other walkers, along the same path. The sun shone brightly at intervals. A fresh breeze swept the wide expanse, streaked with purple and green, and turned an occasional broken wave-crest toward the western light. Some large cumuli were abroad, white or less white, or even darkling, the first windy sky of autumn. Cope and Amy passed the life-saving station, where a few people sat about idly, and where one or two visitors pressed noses against glass panes to view the boats within, and they reached presently a sort of little public park which lay along the water. Here a small pier ran out past the shallows, and in front of a shack close by it a man sat resignedly near a group of beached and upturned rowboats. One or two others were still in the water, as was a small sloop. The fellow sat there without expectations. The season was about over. The day was none too promising for such as knew. His attitude expressed, in fact, the accumulated disappointment and resignation of many months. Perhaps he was a newcomer from the interior, some region of ponds and rivers, and had kept through an uneventful summer the notion that so big a spread of water would surely be put to use. The sail of the sloop, half lowered, flapped in the breeze, and little else stirred. Our young people overlooked both man and boat. 
"'It's the same lake,' said Amy Leffingwell, rather dreamily, after a common silence of several minutes. "'The same,' returned Cope promptly. "'It's just what it was a year ago, a century ago, and a millennium ago, I suppose, if there was anyone here to notice.' She turned on him a rueful, half-protesting smile. "'I wasn't thinking of a century ago. I was thinking of a month ago.' "'A month ago?' "'Yes, when we were walking along the dunes.' "'Oh, I see. Why, yes, it is the same old lake, though it seems hard to realize it. Foreground makes so much difference, and so does, well, population. I mean, the human element, or the absence of it.' Amy pondered. The one drawback there was that we couldn't go out on the water. Go out? I should say not. No pier for miles, and the water so shallow that hardly more than a canoe could land. Still, those fishermen out there manage it. But plain summerites, especially if not dressed for it, would have an unpleasant time imitating them. Amy cast her eye about. Here was a shore, a pier, a boat, a man to let it. "'Would you like to go out?' asked the man himself perfunctorily, as from the depths of a settled despair. He pointed a thumb over his shoulder toward the sloop. The two young people looked at each other, neither looked at the sky. "'Well, I don't know,' replied Cope slowly. The sloop was on a pretty small scale— Still, it was more to manage than a cat-boat. "'You have the theory, you know,' said Amy demurely, "'and some practice.' Cope looked at her in doubt. "'Can you swim?' he asked. "'Yes,' she returned. "'I have some practice, if not much theory.' "'Could you handle a jib?' "'Under direction.' "'Well, then, if you really wish—' The misanthrope, with a twisted smile, helped them get away. The mainsail took a steady set, but the jib, from the first, possessed an active life of its own. "'Not that rope,' cried Cope. "'The other.' "'Very well,' returned Amy, scrambling across the cockpit. And so it went. In six or eight minutes their small catastrophe overtook them. There came a sudden flaw from out one of the racing gray cumuli, and a faint cry or two from the distant shore. Theory had not put itself into practice as quickly as the emergency required. All the less so in that it had to work through a crew encumbered with a longish skirt and a close jacket. The sloop keeled over. Cope was instantly entangled with the mainsail and some miscellaneous cordage and Amy, with the water soaking her closely fitting garments, found herself clutching the cockpit's edge. She saw Cope's predicament, and let go her hold to set him free. He helped shake himself loose with a loud forced laugh, and a toss of the head to get his long hair out of his eyes. "'We'll leave the wreck,' he sputtered, "'and make for the shore.' The shore, fortunately, was scarcely more than a hundred yards away, yet never had the great twin towers of the library seemed so distant, or the wireless cage on Science Hall so futile. They swam, easily, side by side, he supporting her in her cramped clothes at the start, 
and she, a bit concerned, somewhat supporting him toward the end. Meanwhile, there was some stir at the life-saving station, a quarter of a mile down the shore. The last hundred feet meant mere wading, though there was some variability among the sand ridges of the bottom, but the water, at its deepest, never reached their shoulders. Their small accident now began to take on the character of a ceremonial, an immersion incident to some religious rite or observance, and the little Sunday crowd collecting on the water's edge might have been members of some congregation sympathetically welcoming a pair of converts to the faith. "'Let's hold our heads high and walk straight,' said Cope, his arm in hers. "'Heaven knows whom we are likely to meet. "'And throw your hat away. "'You'll look better without it. "'Lord knows where mine is,' he added, "'as he ran a smoothing hand over his long locks. "'Very well,' she said, "'casting away her ruined, ridiculous headgear with her free arm. "'The other, in his, "'was giving more support to him, she felt, "'than he was giving to her. "'Just as they were about to reach dry land,' Amidst the congratulations and the amused smiles of the little group at the foot of the bluff, the belated crew of lifesavers swept up in their smallest boat and insisted on capturing them. "'Oh, Mr. Cope,' said a familiar voice, "'please let us save you. We haven't saved a soul for months.' Cope recognized one of his own students and surrendered, though a kindly house-owner on the bluff had been quick to cry across the intervening yards of water his offer of hospitality. "'All right,' he said. "'Take us back to your place, where we can dry and telephone.' He hoped, too, that they might have to encounter fewer people at the other spot than this. Meanwhile, another boat belonging to the station had set out to aid the owner of the sloop in its recovery. It was soon righted and was brought in. There was no damage done, and there was no charge that Cope could not meet, as he learned next day to his great relief. The station gave him a dry outfit of clothes, assembled from here and there, and telephoned to Mrs. Phillips to bring fresh garments for Amy. Neither had time to get a chill. A pair of kindly servant-maids, who were loitering on the shore with their young men, insisted on carrying the heroine of the afternoon into retirement, where they expeditiously undressed her, rubbed her, and wrapped her in a quilt snatched from a life-saving bed. Amy was cold indeed, and inclined to shiver. She understood now why Cope had not encouraged that bathing party at the dunes. In a few minutes, Medora Phillips tore up in her car with Helga and a mountain of clothing and wraps. She was inclined to make the most of the occasion, and she did so. With Helga, she quickly superseded the pair of sympathetic and ready maids, whom she allowed to fade into the background with too scant recognition of their services, and when she had got Amy thoroughly warmed and rehabilitated, she turned her thought toward Cope. Here, certainly, was a young scholastic recluse who had an admirable faculty for getting into the public eye. If one section of Churchton society had talked about his performance at her dinner, all sections of it would now be discussing his new performance on the high seas. Suddenly she was struck with the notion that possibly his first lapse had not left him in condition to stand this second one. "'How are you feeling?' she asked anxiously. 
No chill? No shock? I'm all right, he declared. One of the boys has just given me a drink of... of... But it was a beverage the use of which was not generally approved in Churchton. Mrs. Phillips turned round suddenly. Amy, did you have a drink, too, of... 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 if of is what you call it? I did, said Amy firmly, and I feel the better for it. Well, get in, then, and I'll take you home. Peter grinned from the front seat of the car. Mrs. Phillips placed herself between the two victims on the back one. The lifesavers, who had kept the discarded garments to dry, gave them all a few smiles and hand-wavings. The two young women and their two young men looked on with some deference. The general crowd gave a little mock cheer before turning its Sunday leisure to other forms of interest, and the small party whirled away. Amy leaned a tired, moist head, but a happy one, on Mrs. Phillips' shoulder. He was so quick, she breathed, and so brave and so strong. She professed to believe that he had saved her life. Cope, silent, as he looked straight ahead between Peter and Helga, was almost afraid that she had saved his. End of chapter 16 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista